Only those of a certain age would remember this. But a house, a home, used to only have one phone. A phone with a cord. A phone with a cord that was attached to the wall. It was a one-person mechanism in that only one person could be on the phone in the house at a certain time. And when the phone would ring, there was no indication of who it was who was calling. You had to pick up the phone, put it to your ear, and listen. Often I would hear from my parents. I would call them, they would call me, and when I would hear, say, the voice of my father, I would recognize it was him immediately. I don't think it would take four seconds, five seconds. Within a second, within certainly a second and a half, I knew my father's voice. I recognized it. In the same way, the church, the people of God who have the Holy Spirit, recognize the shepherd's voice, the voice of God in Scripture. That is quite a profound understanding when we come to realize this. The Holy Spirit testifies to the people of God the voice of God, the vox Dei, the voice of God. Some quotes before we launch into the teaching. In the Council uh, on Biblical Inerrancy, the Chicago Statement of the International Council on Biblical Inerrancy, we have a, a section that reads as this. We affirm that a confession of the full authority, infallibility, and inerrancy of Scripture is vital to a sound understanding of the whole of the Christian faith. We further affirm that such confession should lead to increasing conformity to the image of Christ. We deny that such a confession is necessary for salvation. However, we further deny that inerrancy can be rejected without grave consequences, both to the individual and the church. I agree. So important we understand what we have in Scripture, and Scripture is unlike anything else written. John Wesley, someone who is highly esteemed, although I would not always agree with him, I agree with him in this quote. He said this, I want to know one thing, the way to heaven. God himself has condescended to teach the way. He hath written it down in a book. At any price, give me the book of God. End of quote. I hope in this short series you're seeing the value of Scripture. Scripture is God-breathed and nothing else is. Let me quote J.I. Packer at this point. The problem of authority is the most fundamental problem that the Christian church ever faces. This is because Christianity is built on truth, that is to say, on the content of divine revelation. He goes on to say, Faith in Jesus Christ is possible only where the truth concerning him is known. A lot of people believe in God. A lot of people believe in a Jesus, but which Jesus? We are to believe in the Jesus of Scripture because Scripture speaks with ultimate authority as to who God is, who the real Jesus is, what the way of salvation is, and these things are not fuzzy. Second Timothy 3 tells us when Paul writes to his young son in the faith, you've known from childhood the sacred writings 
which are able to make you wise for salvation in Jesus Christ. It's, it's vital we get this. It's absolutely vital. Here's a quote from Edward J. Young. The Christian recognizes the Scriptures as inspired because they are such and bear in themselves the evidence of their divinity. Let me just uh, pause for a moment and comment. This speaks of self-authenticity. They speak to us as God-breathed material because they are such. Let me read that again. The Christian recognizes the Scriptures as inspired because they are such and bear in themselves the evidence of their divinity. Of course, man, unaided, cannot so recognize the Scriptures, for the mind of man is affected by sin. Only God can identify for man that word which has proceeded out of his mouth. End of quote. It goes back to me as a son hearing the voice of my father in the same way the church because of the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart of the people of God, we recognize God's voice, the shepherd's voice in Scripture. Ned B. Stonehouse, he said this, to choose a philosophy which makes man ultimate is to commit intellectual and moral suicide. Hmm. To acknowledge the final authority of the God of Christian theism, the God of the Bible, is to guarantee intellectual and moral integrity. His word must necessarily bear witness to its intrinsic divine character. That's a way of of saying the same thing. So important we grasp that. We grasp it because God has revealed himself in Scripture. St. Augustine, he once said this, This I have learned to do, to hold only those books which are called the Holy Scriptures in such honor that I finally believe that not one of the holy writers ever erred, ever erred, depending on how you say that word. Notice only those books which are called the Holy Scriptures does he hold in such honor as we would say inerrant without error. There's a difference between inerrancy and infallibility. Inerrancy means without error. Infallibility is a step beyond that. It includes the idea that there's no error, but it goes to the point that it is incapable of being in error. And that's the view we Protestants have of the Bible, uh, the Orthodox amongst us anyway. We believe the Bible is the Word of God. It's without error and incapable of being in error. Why? Because its source is God Himself. The God-breathed scriptures carry with it the weight of God who is without error error and is incapable of error completely. God is the truth. God is truth himself. Jesus said, I am the truth. God is a God of truth. And though man can fail and man can err, God never can. 
and the scriptures having its source in God because men were carried along by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, God himself, God the Holy Spirit, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. The Christian has great, great comfort knowing that God has spoken in his word. Now, we say all this and we quote this because that's the view Jesus had of the scriptures. Jesus had the highest possible view of the scriptures. What scriptures? The canon of the Bible. We've talked already about canonicity. It refers to the fact that our Bibles are complete. The canon is closed since the death of the last apostle. Uh, The Bible's comprised of the 66 books from Genesis to Revelation in the Old Testament, Genesis to Malachi, 39 books in the New Testament, Matthew through to the book of Revelation, 27 books, 39 plus 27 is 66. And we receive those books as inspired and submit to them. And one of the main reasons why we do that is Jesus affirmed the Old Testament. He affirmed it many times in his ministries. We're going to look at in his ministry, we're going to look at that in some brief detail. And we submit to the 27 books of the New Testament because our Lord Jesus authorized the apostles, his apostles, to write the New Testament. We've talked about the criteria for recognizing the books in the canon of the New Testament. And we've already established, they were established on the principle it had to be written by an apostle or endorsed by an apostle. We've gone through that already. But this is very, very good for us to review. The Holy Spirit has given us, through the means of man, the Bible didn't come down to us on a parachute one Tuesday in a leather-bound edition, gold trim and gold-edged, 66-book canon, but God has spoken, and just as any author, I've been an author, I recognize my books amongst all of the other books out there. Um, The Holy Spirit has given us 66 books, and we, the church, because of the Holy Spirit, you see that? Because of the Holy Spirit, understand the difference between God's words and someone else's. Let God be true and every man a liar, the scripture says. So the word of God consists of that which God has revealed through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Again, to quote 2 Peter chapter 1, know this first of all, no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. We could say origination, that's the thought, that's the, the, the real strength of that statement. It has its origin, not in man. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved, carried along by. The Holy Spirit spoke from God. That's the right view of Scripture. It's Scripture's view of Scripture. Now, when we turn to, to Jesus, we, we, we really need to work through this Jesus had the highest possible view of Scripture. And there's no doubt about that. 
he said the scripture cannot be broken. Uh, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Uh, he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And when we look at Jesus' view, we're going to look at some uh, scripture verses regarding that. We need to understand that there is a Christian world out there that does not always submit to the Bible. And when you say, but Jesus had the highest view, their response is, well, Jesus was God, yes, but he was also man. And as man, he was just operating as a child of his day. He was believing what first century Judaism was affirming. He was a Jew, according to the flesh. And we've learned some things since then. And Jesus, as a man, only could understand what was available to him in the first century. He was a child of his day. And honestly, he was wrong. He was understandably wrong, but he was wrong. What do we do with that? Because Jesus was truly God and truly man. As a man, he had to learn things. He had to learn his ABCs, the alphabet, except that's not true in Hebrew. There is no ABC, but there are letters of the alphabet um, in, in a Hebrew sense. He had to learn them. He had to learn how to count. Now, as God, he created all things and knew all things and was omniscient. He knew everything, but as a man, he had to grow in wisdom and stature, the scripture tells us. So what do we do with that? Well, Jesus was a man. He did live in the first century, but Jesus was also divine. Jesus was also God, and being divine, he would know whether something was true or not. That relates to his omniscience. If something wasn't true, he would know it. And to speak of it as truth, if he knew as God it was false, that wouldn't really uh, affect anything except something massive here, his sinlessness. If you know something is not true and you call it true, that's actually a falsehood. That's to lie. And that would mean Jesus was not sinless. And he had to be sinless. He was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. The book of Hebrews testifies. So that, that argument of those so-called Christian people who do not have a high view of Scripture, you've got a problem with Jesus because Jesus had the highest possible view of Scripture. And we as Christians submit to Jesus and Jesus had that high view and as God to affirm the high view of scripture he did and know that it wasn't really what he was saying would be a sinful act perish the thought perish the thought so the word of God in its totality and its entirety um, is affirmed by Jesus. I'd like us to turn to the Gospel of Matthew. There's a, there's a number of these statements of Jesus found there. Matthew chapter 5 is where we'll start. Matthew chapter 5. If you're turning there, just 
Thank the Lord, would you, for the scripture. Oh, thank God we have his word. Jesus said this in the Sermon on the Mount, verse 17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Iota and dot refers to the smallest marks on a page that could alter the sense of a word. Uh, This is not just a view that believes the words are inspired, but the actual spots on the page of Scripture. Little tiny marks, we would say in our English understanding, the dotting of an I, the crossing of a T. That's Jesus' view of the inspiration of Scripture, that there's not a dotting of the I or a crossing of a T that won't be fulfilled until all that is written in the law and the prophets is accomplished. That's Jesus' view of the inspiration of Scripture. A yod is a very, very small Mark, and we say in English, jot, iota, same thing. It's a, it's a small mark. And Jesus had that view of Scripture. It's important we realize this. Go to Matthew chapter 10. That's, let's speak to the historical reliability of Scripture. Jesus related certain events as he was teaching that had happened in the course of redemptive history, and he affirmed them as true historical events. Matthew chapter 10. In giving instruction to his 12 apostles, he said this, Matthew 10 verse 14, If anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Look at verse 15. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. There's a lot in what he just said. He affirmed that what we understand about Sodom and Gomorrah, a real judgment took place. And he's saying that when you go out with your message... If they do not receive you and your message, it's going to be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town, the town you go to. He's affirming there will be judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah. Why? Because the events described in Genesis actually took place. That's the inference there. It's an unavoidable inference. Sodom and Gomorrah, what we read about, actually happened. But when you go out to any town and you preach and they don't receive you, it's going to be better on the day of judgment for the people of Sodom and Gomorrah than for those that hear you in this, the first century. That's that's powerful stuff. Go to chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. Picking up in verse... 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. 
But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Look at verse 40. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Do you see what is taking place there? When Jesus says these words, look at verse 40, he affirmed that Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. Again, he's affirming the historical reliability of Scripture, the Old Testament in this regard. And the preaching of Jonah, what happened in Nineveh, he's affirming that. What happened with the Queen of the South as she came to view Solomon and the vast resources and wealth he had. Uh, he, he was affirming all of that, and yet he was saying something greater than Solomon is here. Something greater than Jonah is here. But he was affirming the reliability of Scripture. Now, skeptics in our day have mega problems with the idea of someone surviving being swallowed by a great fish. Although, if you were to Google it, um, someone swallowed by a whale or a great fish, there are evidences of people, plural, who survived such things in our day. But... Uh, those, those, th- those, th- those news stories, while interesting, is not the basis of why I believe uh, Jonah was in the heart of a great fish. I believe it because Scripture says it. That's it. That's all the evidence I need as a Christian who submits to Scripture. And when you realize Jesus affirmed that story, wow, it goes to a, a second degree, a second level, doesn't it? Jesus affirmed the historical event of Jonah and the big fish. It's great that people, not many, but some have survived being swallowed by a fish and lived to tell the tale, came out um, very much uh, looking like they'd been in the stomach and the stomach juices of a fish, kind of gory to think about, but that's what Scripture says happened with Jonah. And God was orchestrating the whole event. Uh, read, read the book of Jonah. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. And I believe the book of Jonah, just as I believe the books of the Old Testament and the New Testament, because the Holy Spirit attests to my heart and mind the reliability of the evidence that this is Scripture and God has spoken. Just as I recognize my Father's voice on the phone, I recognize God's voice through the Scripture. And Jesus affirmed the historical reliability of that event. Turn to Matthew 19. Matthew chapter 19. And skeptics really hammer the idea of Jonah and the big fish, but Jesus affirmed it. It's interesting where skeptics go in their attack on the Bible, their attack on the book of Genesis, Jesus affirmed Genesis. Jesus affirmed so, so much in Scripture. We're looking at 
some of this. Look at Matthew chapter 19, verse 3. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning, and he's now speaking of Genesis, the word Genesis means book of beginnings. He then quotes Genesis. Look at this. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart. Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. Now, we're not going to get into the, the argument uh, uh, here, but just affirm this. Jesus believed in a historical understanding of the events of Genesis, that Genesis 1 and 2 actually happened. And he believed Moses was the author of Genesis because of your hardness of heart, uh, Moses. And, of course, the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, when Moses laid out principles that it would allow for divorce after Genesis 1 and 2, uh, we, we read of those in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, we read of those things specifically, Jesus said, Moses gave you that. Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. So again, Jesus affirmed the authorship of the first five books of the Bible by that statement, Moses was the author. Moses gave you that. Uh, go to chapter 24 of Matthew. Matthew chapter 24. Verse 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows. No one knows what? Um, the hour of the coming of Jesus. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Again, he's affirming the historical reliability of Noah and the flood. In those few words, that's exactly what he's doing. As it were in the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. So there was a flood, Noah entered the ark, and Jesus described the activities of mankind before the flood, eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage. He was affirming the historical reliability of the story of Noah. And they were unaware, verse 39, until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. It's fascinating when you see it. Jesus affirmed the first couple of chapters of Genesis, the writings of Moses, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, 
uh, Jonah and the fish, Noah and the flood. Question for you, where are the attacks on the Bible in our day, in this, the 21st century? Well, there's a lot of attacks, but the most vehement are on those exact issues. Isn't that interesting? Genesis being true, Sodom and Gomorrah ever happening, Noah and the flood, a worldwide flood, swept them all the way, Jesus said. Hmm. There it is. The Bible's right up to date. And Jesus affirmed the historical reliability of Scripture. In Matthew 26, on to the right if you were in Matthew 24, Matthew 26, Jesus, how would I say it? Not only believed Scripture, but believed that Scripture was being fulfilled in his life. Look at this. Verse 52, Jesus said to them, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? In other words... I can get out of this anytime I want, if I want to. But how then, verse 54, should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? This is speaking of his arrest and what will be his crucifixion. And Jesus said all that's taking place is happening because the scriptures are being fulfilled. How then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? In Luke 16, on to the right, Matthew, Mark, then Luke, Luke chapter 16, Jesus relates a story that, again, speaks to something of the sufficiency of Scripture. People wanted signs. People wanted to see someone raised from the dead, coming back to life, and Jesus said, you don't need that. No one needs that. All they need are the scriptures. Look at Luke 16. Story of the rich man and Lazarus. You remember the story, I'm sure. Verse 22, we'll pick up the story. The poor man died, was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, 
But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Jesus then said to him, he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Many things are going on in this passage, but one thing to just bring out clearly is Jesus taught the sufficiency of Scripture. The sufficiency of Scripture. He taught the unity of Scripture, that the Scripture speaks of Him. Read Luke 24. In fact, we, we, we should do that. Luke chapter 24. This is after the resurrection. Verse 27, he's speaking to those who were perplexed and confused on the road to Emmaus. And uh, Jesus uh, related to them. Verse 25, he said to them, they were perplexed. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but the him they did not see. Verse 25, he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ, the Messiah, should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Question. Well, yeah, because that's what the prophets reveal. The Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. So believe that. And verse 27, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He affirmed the unified message of the scripture. Go down, if you will, to verse 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Again, the unity of Scripture. He's speaking there of the three designations the Jews had of what we would call the Old Testament. Uh, the prophets uh, followed the law. So the law first, the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. Um, the Psalms was a portion of the writings. And it was those three designations that the Jews understood Scripture to, to, to be um, housed in the law, the law of Moses, the first five books, uh, the prophets and the writings that covered the other books of the Old Testament. And Jesus affirmed that designation in these words. But he, he spoke of the, the unity of the message. He said in John 17, thy word, your word is truth. The scripture cannot be broken, John 10, 35. And he spoke of its authority and compared the authority of Scripture to the traditions of men. Traditions of men never come up to the level of Theonoustos, God-breathed material. So think of that. Verse 27, Luke 24. He explained to them the things concerning himself in all the Scriptures. And verse 44 that which is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Um, as, as we think of that, think of the New Testament. Jesus spoke to his uh, disciples and uh, these are the 
apostles and said this, John chapter 14, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he'll teach you all things, and remember this, and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Again, Jesus taught that the apostles would have divine aid in recalling the very words of Jesus. Hear that. He'll teach you all things, the Holy Spirit will, and bring to your memory, to your remembrance, all that I said to you. So Jesus affirmed the fact that they weren't going to forget what they needed to remember. And they would remember it accurately because of the Holy Spirit's work. Not because these were men of great ability mentally and had uh, either photographic minds because they wrote down what he said or uh, had some infallibility of the audio persuasion. They could remember absolutely accurately, uh, inherently what anyone ever would say to them. No, the Holy Spirit would help. The Holy Spirit would bring to their remembrance all that I said to you. That's so, so vital. Again, Jesus is affirming there that when these apostles wrote, they would be writing accurately because of the help of the Holy Spirit. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my, my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your memory, bring to your remembrance, not only what I said to you, but all that I said to you. Everything needed is found in the power and work of the Holy Spirit, not in the apostles themselves. And John 16, he said, when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you, speaking to the apostles there, he will guide you into all the truth, for he'll not speak of his own authority, his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me for he'll take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. The apostles themselves understood that they were writing by the power of the Holy Spirit. You could read of that in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul, in fact, it's very important we, we do that. Paul, uh, in 1 Corinthians 14, though he was writing a letter, understood what he was writing was more than simply his understanding and his opinion. 1 Corinthians 14, look with me in verse 37. If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. First Thessalonians. First Thessalonians chapter 2. Again, Paul writing. Verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God which you heard from us, us being apostles, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. Again, understanding this was not just the best possible opinion. We're preaching the word of God. 
they recognized their own writings as being on a par with the books of the Old Testament, the Word of God. First uh, Thessalonians chapter 4, look at verse 15. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who've fallen asleep. Second uh, Peter, we've talked about Paul. Let's look at Peter and his understanding. Second Peter chapter 3. This is now the second letter, verse 1. 2 Peter 3, verse 1. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Again, he's putting the prophets on the same level as the command of the Lord through your apostles, he being one of them. In fact, he goes on to put uh, Paul's words in his letters on the same par as Scripture. He actually calls it, uh, calls them Scripture. Verse 14, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters. So Paul and all his letters, when he speaks of them in these means, in, in these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. Paul, Peter found some things of Paul hard to understand. That's actually a comfort, isn't it? Even as an apostle, he had to think through a lot of the things that Paul wrote. We're in good company when we find ourselves in the same boat. Peter had that issue too. We have to think, as in fact Scripture tells us to do. Think through, think on these things, think them through, and the Lord will give you understanding, is the promise. There are some things in them, them being the letters of Paul. So Peter's writing about the letters of Paul and says this, writes this, there are some things in them that are hard to understand which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. What's the absolutely unavoidable inference there? Um, it's this. These ignorant and unstable people do this with Paul's writings as they do to the other scriptures. Peter is putting Paul's writings on the level of Scripture. 1 John chapter 4. On to the right again. 1 John chapter 4. Verse 16. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. Actually, I'm in verse 16. I should be in verse 6, excuse me. Verse 16 is good, but I wanted to be in verse 6. We are from God. Whoever knows God, look at this, listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Again, the apostles, this is now John. We talked about Paul, we talked about Peter. Now we're talking about John. 
And he's able to say this, whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of, of error. I, I thank God for the scriptures. I thank God and, I, and I'm asking that as I pray for you hearing this, you, you will understand the value of what you have in your hands. I've, I've said it before, but to have the Bible, to even have a page of it is a priceless thing. To have 66 books of Theognustos, God-breathed material, it's an amazing treasure. Jesus affirmed the Old Testament as the Word of God. And we as disciples of Jesus should do the same. We must do the same. And he established the principle for the New Testament of apostolic authority when he further promised that the Holy Spirit would aid them to remember everything he needed, everything necessary that he had said to them. And with us receiving the Word of God, we submit to it. We submit to Christ when we submit to Scripture. That revelation was only promised to the apostles. He will lead you into all truth. He'll take of mine and disclose it to you. All things I've said to you, he'll, he'll bring it to your remembrance. And so I believe it's Bible, it's biblical to say, when the last apostle died, the canon closed. When the apostolic age came to an end, John being the last of the apostles, the canon closed. I believe in a closed canon. God is not revealing new truth. A 67th book of the Bible being written in our day. No, the canon is closed. Now, God now gives illumination to us of the revelation, but there's no new revelation. God is not speaking through any apostles today. There were certain criteria to be an apostle, one of which to, was to see the risen Christ and be commissioned by him. And Paul called himself the last of the apostles. You can read that in 1 Corinthians 15. And so there's no new apostles on earth and there's no new scripture being written. The canon is closed. The Holy Spirit now is not giving revelation. He's giving illumination. And those are important things to distinguish. I'm going to wrap up now, but I trust it's just been a, a, bless, a blessing to your soul to, to hear Jesus on this theme. Do you and I submit to Jesus? If we do, two words would sum up this distinction. According to Jesus, the two words in theological terms are sola scriptura. That's it. Jesus put scripture on a level nothing else was like, nothing else was near it, and he challenged every tradition that did not conform to scripture. And the New Testament points us to nowhere else. Only scripture is God breathed. Let me finish by quoting kind of a lengthy quote, but it's, it's a worthwhile quote from 
uh, Kevin DeYoung. Jesus held scripture in the highest possible esteem. He knew his Bible intimately and loved it deeply. He often spoke with language of scripture. He easily alluded to scripture. And in his moments of greatest trial and weakness, like being tempted by the devil or being killed on a cross, he quoted scripture. His mission was to fulfill scripture and his teaching always upheld scripture. He never disrespected, never disregarded, never disagreed with a single text of scripture. He affirmed every bit of law, prophecy, narrative, and poetry. He shuddered to think of anyone anywhere violating, ignoring, or rejecting scripture. Jesus believed in the inspiration of scripture down to the sentences, down to the phrases, to the words, to the smallest letter, to the tiniest mark. He accepted the chronology, the miracles, and the authorial ascriptions as giving the straightforward facts of history. He believed in keeping the spirit of the law without ever minimizing the letter of the law. He affirmed the human authorship of scripture while at the same time bearing witness to the ultimate divine authorship of the scriptures. He treated the Bible as a necessary word, a sufficient word, a clear word, and the final word. It was never acceptable in his mind to contradict scripture or to stand above scripture. He believed the Bible was all true, all edifying, all important, and all about him. He believed absolutely that the Bible was from God and was absolutely free from error. What scripture says, God says. And what God said was recorded infallibly in scripture. Jesus submitted his will to the scriptures, committed his brain to study the scriptures, and humbled his heart to obey the scriptures. In summary, it is impossible to revere the scriptures more deeply or affirm them more completely than Jesus did. The Lord Jesus, God's Son and our Savior, believed his Bible was the Word of God down to the tiniest speck, and that nothing in all those specks and in all those books in his Bible could ever be broken. End of quote. With that, I'll conclude. Lord, thank you for this time together. May the hearts of the saints be encouraged and enlarged and affirmed in the truthfulness of your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.